One of the things I have learned from Sam Harris as I practice meditation is that the story we tell ourselves, our internal narrative, identification with our thoughts, colors the experiences we have. Anxiety imposes a nervous sense of the future, fear of what is coming up upon the perception of the present. This is a nefarious kind of context. Everything we experience has a certain kind of meaning to us based on the context. Just consider the poor son of a bitch who puts a gun in his mouth because he just lost his fortune and only has a million dollars left to his name. I don't know about you, but from where I am sitting, having a million dollars would be amazing. I would be on cloud nine if I was to find myself in such a position, and this unfortunate man is at the lowest point imaginable. He'd rather be dead. In meditation, it is possible to just experience the immediate sensory landscape with the focus of attention wrapped up in the current unfolding moment. An important application of such practice, especially to the extent that it can influence the way that the day is experienced, is the reduction of suffering. What is all this suffering? It seems to be a kind of involuntary masochism. Underneath the surface we are telling ourselves, or subconscious aspects of ourselves are telling us, that we are not good enough, that we are doing the wrong thing, that we are weak or stupid or lazy. They are telling us that we do not feel good, that we are tired and anxious. How much of this anxiety is the implicit narrative that we are anxious? It seems to me that the normal human state of mind, at least in the modern world as we live it, is what Henry David Thoreau called quiet desperation. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. What is an experience? Today I will consider this concept to see if there is anything of value to be illuminated. We might describe seeing a concert or a movie as an experience, or even a whole camping trip or a vacation overseas, but really the packaging of so many events inside of that one word, experience, I don't necessarily find appropriate in terms of exploring consciousness. So let us narrow the focus a bit further. Listening to a song, or riding a roller coaster, let's say. Even here, within the constraints of two or three minutes, we will find a long sequence of moments with many different sights and sounds and feelings therein. Certainly in the episodic memory recalled later, we might compress those moments into one thing. But imagine a conversation on such a recollection. A friend might ask you about how you enjoyed a roller coaster. Let's call the ride the Descent into Hell. That sounds like a cool idea for a roller coaster at Cedar Point, right? Your friend asks, dude, what did you think of the descent into hell? It was awesome, you reply. Right away, it plunges down into the ground through this long, dark tunnel. And then you hear a woman scream. You drop into a bright, hot, fiery hellscape of swooping demons and writhing bodies hanging from chains. And it's all set to a Slayer soundtrack. But wait, it gets better. The conversation goes on. Right away, we can notice that this single experience of the roller coaster is really a number of experiences. You experienced the fast downward plunge with your stomach seeming to rise inside of you. Everything in the dark, a feeling of excited anticipation. That 10-second event was certainly an experience. Then you saw the light coming up at the end of the tunnel. You had a momentary sense that this is what death must be like, flying headlong toward the light. That was an experience, too. Then you heard a woman scream as the space around you filled with light and motion and heat. That's another experience. Then your body flies around a turn as a creature with wings and horns roars down from above. You get the point. Nor have we exhausted the experiences you had. What was it like when you first latched the seatbelt? Were you surprised when you heard the woman scream? At what point did the heavy metal music kick in? Obviously, the way we use the term experience is rather broad. 
we can apply it to very brief occasions as well as to quite long ones. But my interest here is not to come to a new, more restricted definition of a word. My interest is to unpack the usage of a concept. Let's focus even further. In the previous episode, I told you about Integrated Information Theory, IIT. According to IIT, a conscious experience has a definite spatial and temporal grain. The spatial grain refers to the elements involved, the neurons whose activities are directly involved. The temporal grain refers to the bin of time, the time frame over which those elements, doing what they do, produces the experience. This, according to IIT, is perhaps two or three hundred milliseconds. I do not doubt that a minimal experience might be about that long. Certainly we could define an experience as the minimal unit of time over which we can consciously perceive something happening, so you might think we have resolved the problem. The roller coaster episode was actually some large sequence of moments, which we could call experiences. Let's look into that. Listen to the following word. Experience. That's four syllables. How many experiences must you have had inside of listening to that word? I just timed it with a stopwatch. It takes me about one second or so to express that word. That's about 250 milliseconds per syllable. Not bad. That's one experience per syllable. When I say the word, can you hear it? Can you hear the word experience? Or just the syllables one after another? It seems to me that I can perceive both things, the whole word as well as its parts in sequence. I can have an experience of the first syllable, X, and the second syllable, peer, and so on, nested within a temporally larger experience of perceiving the whole word. I'm not saying that we perceive the sound of the four syllables together in unison. Rather, I'm noticing that we perceive the coming and changing and going of the word as one experience. Let's try out a different example. Consider a rhythm. Beat, 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 whatever it is. Suppose that only one beat or one and a half beats takes place within each experience as defined by IIT. Does that mean you can't experience the rhythm? I can. I experience each beat of the drum in the context of the previous beats. That is, I can hear each individual sound and a sequence within which those sounds occur. I can even do this when the rhythm is slower, like the chiming of the church bells at the beginning of ACDC's Hell's Bells. That must be at least two seconds between chimes. Out of curiosity, I listened to a progressing metronome on YouTube to see how many beats per minute I could listen to and still perceive the individual discrete sounds. I had no problem doing this, up to about 2,000 beats per minute or so. 2,000 divided by 60 is about 33 beats per second. The simplest interpretation is that I have experiences nested within larger experiences. But according to IIT, there is no nesting allowed. Each experience occurs in full, as one monad, one crystal, as Koch put it. So in the event of listening to the metronome at 2,000 beats per minute for one second, I'm having, as IIT would say, about four experiences, each composed of about eight beats. Why should that be? Did I not hear each of the beats individually, as well as hearing them all together in sequence? I did. My observation that experiences can be arranged in a nested manner extends beyond the auditory arena. Let's have a visual example. You watch a beetle wander across a piece of wood. Let's have a one-second viewing during which the beetle might slow down, speed up, stop, turn, or just keep on moving at the same pace. Hell, here's a nice little experiment. How many discrete movements can I track in one second? Is that the number that represents the number of experiences I'm having? After all, if an experience is definite, like IIT says it is, then it cannot contain changes. 
It is one thing and one thing only. So change can only be present if we observe across experiences in succession. If experiences are discrete, monadic units occurring in succession, then what occurs across one full second is something like four experiences, each a quarter of a second long. One plus one plus one plus one. Nothing more and nothing less. But a nested framework could yield much more. The first 250 milliseconds and the second 250 milliseconds, but also the first and second experiences in terms of one another, and then the second and third in terms of each other, and the first and second and third all in terms of one another. If we think in multimodal terms, I would not at all be surprised to learn that we have different capacities for tracking visual versus auditory stimuli, as an example. The thing which puts the nail in the coffin, in my opinion, is the idea that an experience, a whole experience, is binned into a common two or three hundred millisecond frame. That means that any sound, feeling, thought, or visual stimulus is collapsed with all the others into a common instant of consciousness. So I should not be able to distinguish small differences in starting time, say 100 milliseconds difference between, say, a sound and the appearance of a light. This implies that different modal sensations have to sort of fall into phase with one another in order to be part of a common experience. Let's take a different angle on today's question. Let's talk about context. The functions of the hippocampus seem to have a lot to do with context, and without context, an experience has a completely different meaning to us. Imagine zapping into conscious existence for the experience of the second syllable of the word experience. As I was discussing it a minute ago, you are conscious. You see a scene as you hear the vocalization, peer. Taken in isolation, this experience makes no sense at all. You certainly don't get the meaning of the word that I was saying, and you don't know why I'm saying it. You don't even know where you are or when. In a recent publication, I reported the results of a fear-learning study on regional brain metabolism using a radioactive form of glucose. In this study, fear-learning takes place in three stages, all of them inside a behavior chamber. On the first day, each rat is placed in the chamber with a set of contextual cues we call Context A. After a few minutes, a 10-second audible tone plays inside the chamber, at the end of which the rat receives an electric shock. This occurs a total of five times. This stage is called fear conditioning because the animal will learn to associate the tone with the shock. When rats are afraid, they freeze. That is, they stop moving altogether. We measure the amount of time the rat spends freezing by collecting overhead video of the experiment. A typical rat will start out actively sniffing around and rearing and so on. And as the fear conditioning trials continue, eventually remain still almost continually. That's fear conditioning. Context A, five tones with shocks. The second day, we return the rat to the chamber, but the context is different. The day before, it was dark in the chamber. Today, it is light. The day before, there was one smell. Today, it smells different, and so on. This is context B. The rat is subjected to 30 trials, just like the day before. A 10-second audible tone sounds, but no electric shock occurs. This is fear extinction. Normally, as soon as the rat hears the first tone, it freezes up and remains that way for a few trials. Then it calms down, begins to move around and explore once it has heard several tones but received no shocks. The tone becomes dissociated from the shock, at least in this new context. So fear extinction is context B, 30 tones, no shocks. The third and final day is known as the fear extinction recall test. The rat is placed back in the chamber under context B. The question is, will the animal be afraid? Will it expect to be shocked at the end of the tone or not? A typical laboratory rat will remember the day before. 
It will not expect to be shocked in this context, and in fact it is not. So the animal moves around and explores almost as if it had never had the aversive experience of the first day. In my recently published study, I showed that rats exhibit a decrease in hippocampus activity during fear extinction recall. That's right, a decrease in hippocampal activity. The point of the study was to find out what is going on in the brain of rats that have previously been exposed to traumatic stress, a rat model of PTSD. We put control animals and stress-exposed animals through the same three-day experimental series. Control rats and stress-exposed rats show the same basic pattern on fear conditioning and fear extinction. But during the extinction recall test, which is in context B, with the rats which had been subjected to traumatic stress, this downward modulation in hippocampal activity did not occur. And importantly, those animals continued to exhibit freezing behavior for much longer. The control animals seemed to be able to distinguish the safe context from the aversive context, but the PTSD model animals did not make the distinction, and neither did their hippocampus. In the discussion section, my colleagues and I wrote, quote, The present findings are consistent with the idea that overgeneralization of fear and PTSD might be linked to a deficiency in appropriate pattern separation in a DGCA3 hippocampal circuit. Under normal healthy circumstances, the hippocampus is thought to limit generalization of fear by enabling discrimination between disparate but similar contexts. To do so, a pattern separation function dependent on DGCA3 circuit minimizes potential interfaces between new and previous memory traces. On the other hand, pattern completion linked to CA3 enables partial features to reinstate previous cortical activity in its entirety. Thus, correct discrimination between similar contexts appears to elicit global remapping in both the dentate gyrus and hippocampal CA3. During contextual fear learning, increased connectivity from inhibitory neurons in CA3 to DG has been reported, and this inhibition is thought to be important in preventing fear overgeneralization." This is just one example of how the hippocampus mediates context. S given certain cues in the environment, we are made aware of previous associated situations, either consciously or subconsciously. We feel the context emotionally. We might become afraid or excited or anxious or relaxed. To one degree or another, it now appears that the hippocampus is involved in contextual memory. Here's a short excerpt from a review article on the hippocampus by Moser, Kropf, and Moser. They said, quote, the experimental study of spatial representations in the brain began with the discovery of place cells. More than 35 years ago, O'Keefe and Dostrovsky, 1971, reported spatial receptive fields in complex spiking neurons in the rat hippocampus, which are likely to be pyramidal cells. These place cells fired whenever the rat was in a certain place in the local environment, the place field of the cell. Neighboring place cells fired at different locations such that throughout the hippocampus, the entire environment was represented in the activity of the local cell population. The same place cells participated in representations for different environments, but the relationship of the firing fields differed from one setting to the next. Inspired by Tolman, 1948, who suggested that local navigation is guided by internal cognitive maps that flexibly represent the overall spatial relationships between landmarks and the environment, O'Keefe and Nadel, 1978, proposed that place cells are the basic elements of a distributed, non-centered map-like representation. Place cells were suggested to provide the animals with a dynamic, continuously updated representation of allocentric space and the animal's own position in that space. We now have abundant evidence from a number of mammalian species 
demonstrating that the hippocampus plays a key role in spatial representation and spatial memory. Although new evidence suggests that position is only one of several facets of experience stored in the hippocampal network." Unquote. We have ample evidence that locations in space are tracked by the hippocampus. Perhaps associations in time are tracked there too. Features of time and space co-occurring with or associated with ongoing events provide context. What does the context suggest about having an experience? It certainly determines the nature of the experience. Features in time and space immediately adjacent to the current moment alter the way it is experienced. Imagine emerging suddenly into consciousness on the downward plunge of the descent into hell. That amusement park experience would have something of a different character then, wouldn't it? An experience must not only contain the perceptual modalities, the sights and sounds, etc., but an awful lot of other contextual qualia. Where you are, why you are there, how things are developing according to expectations or not, your mood, how you feel about yourself and your environment, and on and on. All of this is baked right into the subjective quality of the moment. Clearly, short-term and long-term memory functions are critical. If you are on the third winding turn of the roller coaster, the part where flaming skeletons are screaming and rattling their cages while the bellowing laughter of Satan echoes through the cavern, you understand what has been happening, in what order, have a sense of how long the ride has been going. You're tracking the progress of the Slayer song as it approaches the guitar solo. My framework, the TICL, suggests that the term experience should be hard to nail down and define. Experiences are nested within other experiences. This accords well with the phenomenology to which we are exposed every day. The sight of a flaming skeleton coming up on the left does not depend on whether or when you hear Tom Araya scream his next lyric. The different contents of consciousness are independent of one another. According to the TICL, these contents are free to arise, continue, morph, and dis discontinue in their own time. Different contents can overlap, or appear in sequence, or occur in sync, or whatever they do. The neuronal dynamics underlying this are unconstrained by any time constant. Whenever a subsystem gains sufficient temporally integrated causality to rise above that of the whole system, the appropriate content will appear in the composition. If the would-be subsystem is too low in temporally integrated causality, then it is buried in the background noise and utterly unknown. So what is an experience? Consciousness over time, however long or short is the appropriate level of analysis. But there is one thing which deserves considering. I've talked about it before, the phenomenon of backward masking. Stanislas Dehaene and his colleagues performed visual backward masking experiments. In Consciousness in the Brain, Dehaene writes, quote, In our experiment, we flashed a digit for just a single frame of our video screen, 16 milliseconds, then a blank, and finally a mask made of random letters. We varied the duration of the blank in small steps of 16 milliseconds. What did the viewers report? Did their perception change continuously? No, it followed the all or none pattern of phase transition. At long delays, they could see the digit, but at short delays, they saw only the letters. The digit was masked. Crucially, these two states were separated by a clear threshold. Perception was nonlinear. As the delay increased, visibility did not improve smoothly, but showed a sudden step. A delay of about 50 milliseconds separated the perceived and unperceived trials." Unquote. I told you about these experiments in episode 35, on the present moment. I was hypothesizing about the duration of the apparent temporal window. In brief, I said that I suggest that the present moment should be thought of as no less than the duration across which retroactive masking is possible. 
an initial stimulus is flashed briefly. In DeHane's experiment, it was flashed for 16 milliseconds. If only a blank screen follows, then the subject will consistently report seeing it and will be able to tell you what it was. But when after a short blank interval, a new and larger stimulus appears, the subject fails to see the original and cannot identify it. Either some retroactive amnesia effect has occurred, or as I contend, the present moment encompasses a wide enough temporal breadth to produce a single coherent visual experience. Neuronal communication takes time. An action potential has to travel from the cell body of one neuron to its synaptic sites with other cells. Then biochemical events result in release of neurotransmitter into the synapse, which interacts with receptors on the postsynaptic side. Then ion channels up, open up and so on. This introduces delays, so it stands to reason that integration must have some minimal floor of time to produce conscious experience, and it must have some ceiling as well. Maybe those values are flexible depending on conditions in the system. Maybe they are different in distinct sensory or cognitive modalities. I don't know. Understood as a dynamic conscious process, consciousness is not constrained into frames, with or without assigning the label experience to those frames. Thus, I stand by my observation. The axiom which self-justifies to me, that consciousness is continuous in time. At least that's the way it is in my experience. Thank mm -hmm. you.